Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Chicana Code Switchers episode. It's um, really exciting to start our fourth season today and have a new guest um, lined up for today's episode. I'm really excited to be here and um, do a small check-in with Patricia to see how she's doing and what's up with her. Um, what's up with her? So how's it going, Patricia? I think now that we're in the sixth month plus of this pandemic. I feel like it's like a log at this point of what is happening. Um, a lot of things are happening. I think from our previous episode, I discussed my issues with the housing stuff. It took like a whole week to talk about like different nonprofits. And I think that's the frustrating part is that some of them are open, some of them are not, some of them are virtual and they're backed up. Uh, what I learned is that based on my case, because I don't have a, a security deposit, no nonprofit will actually Uh, take up my case or be able to help me because that one would just go straight to small courts claim. And uh, when I was checking the website and stuff, um, they are advisors there that can help you walk you through the process. And so um, the best line of action is just to go directly to them and see how that would go, um, especially how they're conducting because I'm in a different county now, um, how that would all play out. Um, but I'll post all the websites that I found in terms of for anyone who wants to, because I've spent a couple of times with my case. And in some situations, uh, the different organizations in different counties, you have to be a resident there and also be low income in order to have free services. And so you all know how low income works, where you make even a little bit over and they don't give you or provide you those services. And also for my specific case, attorneys don't work in that way, which is unfortunate because I'm like, you can, that's how different organizations get away with it and not have, because it has to either be an eviction or some sort of issue with your security deposit or some sort of issue with the rent, um, the amount or increase or whatnot that this things happen. And so something more nuanced than this, they don't take up a case. Um, But I got a, an opportunity to check like a lot of different resources and I'll post them um, online on our uh, episode caption. Um, so far for work, I was attending different forums from the university for work. And it was, I, I was able to, and I recommend that anyone who works on campus um, to also go to these open forums just because you get a huge sense of like how presentations work how um, people interview, what, they, what kind of questions they ask. So if you're in that position where you're either going to either a next level up director or manager position in higher ed or want to know how these things work, it was interesting. I had a can I, we have it an internal candidate in one of this, one of this position for director of racial advocacy. Um, you know, those other new positions that because of the pandemic and the racial tensions that are happening in this country, higher ed is now reactionary and creating all these different admin positions um, that are supposed to address all these 
anti-racist things in their institution. So it was one of those kind of positions. It was a director position and there was three candidates as per usual for any of these candidates. They usually had three. Um, and it was interesting to see like the different people that were interviewing. And there was one in particular, the second candidate that went on and was not, did not have any experience working in higher ed. And you can immediately tell that the people are just not excited about them. The first one was an internal candidate um, who already works on campus and is well known. Um, and then the third one was someone who worked at a CSU, but it wasn't, um, had a higher up position already. And the way that they presented was, I, I really liked how they talked. The first candidate I really liked because of the ideas that they had, they had something pretty concrete. And then the last one was pretty spot on in how to do an interview. I'm like, this is like a really great example on how to do an interview. And you can tell how they were. I mean, they only had a bachelor's degree, which is something that I'm like, we need to, besides the, we need to not put so much emphasis on what our degree is and more on our experience that we have. And I think that's the important part that regardless of whatever you've done before, I think the important part is like, do you have the vision? Do you have the experience? And how do you talk about it? How do you tailor it to that, to that institution? Do you, have you done your research in terms of what usually gets done or how things get done? Because if you remember, faculty also have a say on, usually they're in the committees and they can determine if you're going to proceed to the next level or not. And I think it was pretty evident, like, if you're going to go into a higher ed position, it is best, and it's also in your best interest to know how higher ed works in the first place. Regardless of what that position is, I think that's going to be crucial. Uh, what I didn't like about this open forum is the head of the police department was there for all three, and they asked basically the same thing, where they're saying police are scared and that like what is that person going to do in terms of how people have been negatively um, uh, having this like in, interaction or thought about police. And what I loved about the third candidate, they said, well, we have to consider what police have done into these communities and they have to acknowledge the harm that they have created. And it's best to create new systems where the people that are the most appropriate should be the first responders. Like the first response should not be violence. The first response have, should not be um, in the way that it has been conducted. So I think, and he was like straight up. And I think that's where I'm like, we need to, especially for all the candidates, everyone else kind of walked around the issue. And I'm like, I think we need to just be direct, be not so scared to say it straight up, even if it is the police person. Um, especially if you're going for a, for a position like the one that they were going for. Um, and regardless of the position, I mean, like, I think you should not be so afraid. And I've mentioned before that I've had that one interview that I had in a, in a different place where they were saying, what kind of things do I do from the NACADA policies in terms of advising? And I was straight up to them. And I was like, well, in my mind, I was like, I don't know what that was mean because I don't have a membership in NACADA, which is the organization for advisors in higher ed. Um, similar to how NASPA is to student affairs and ACPA in student affairs, advisors have a separate association. And I told them no, because those ones do not help for the population that they were trying to reach out to. 
And so I said, we need to use different models of advising that are culturally relevant and also engaging to the populations that we're, because I'm pretty sure if they're doing the things that they're doing, like any other institution that I've been at, it does not work. So I told them, nope, I don't do you, I don't use them. I don't intend to use them because of X, Y, Z of my research and my experience. And I was just straight up in the day they were kind of surprised. And, and some of the things that I said were, uh, were, um, they agreed with. So I think that's the part where we need to just be kind of like bold and, and step our foot down. Um, and I also have been working on different policies that I also don't agree. And I've been stepping up and saying, I, I think there's a better way or from my experience, this has worked. Um, it's just knowing how to like talk about it and just be not so afraid to go along with them. And I think some of my colleagues are working on that because um, they're like, oh, thank you for saying that. I'm like, but again, we're going through the same thing. You also have to say it. And because of the people that were handling these different outreach like um, programs and campaigns for students, um, they're men and people are not, I'm like, y'all are just giving us a headache than anything. And so I think we just have to be more smart on how we present things when we're disagreeing and showing our actual evidence and, and be very strategic on how we're using our own campaigns because we still have agency in how we do things. Um, and so if you don't agree then, and if it's a workplace that does not align with your values and the way that you're doing things, then you can say something about it. If things don't work out, you can always leave, you know, like, and, and that's where you need to know when to let go um, because it's not worth a headache. It's not worth a headache. And so, what about you, Ariana? After all that I've always usually check in long, <laughs> what have you been up to? Um, well, thank you for sharing that because I was formerly an academic advisor and was part of NACADA and I went to the conferences and honestly, I took nothing from them. I tried. I tried to listen and I tried to take notes. But it, it really is just a social networking experience, just a place to say that you're a part of. Maybe maybe I was approaching it wrong, a different way. Not wrong, a different way. Um, but I honestly, as, an, as, a, as a woman of color in these spaces, I just didn't really see the benefit. I just saw, saw it as an excuse to leave my, you know, work, workspace and... Um, gain this professional experience, but I, um, yeah, I was not impressed by, by what I, what, what I experienced. I went to, um, a conference in Georgia and I feel like I took more out of exploring the area than the actual conference. Um, and for me thus far, I have been, um, getting ready for PhD programs. So I've been watching webinars and I've been um, doing like informational interviews with students, prospective students who are interested in also pursuing their master's programs and asking questions. Uh, some of them are undocumented. So they're asking me questions about how I chose my program, how I decided to pursue graduate school. And so that's been very insightful because I get to tell them my story. I get to tell them where I grew up, my reasons for pursuing graduate school. And then they give me feedback as to, you know, like why I would, things that resonated with them, which helps me um, when I'm using these same anecdotes in, you know, other spaces. 
and you know, also connecting them. So there goes my advising skills, right? Connecting them to other people within my network that can help them get to that next step. And yeah, so I, I've been doing my teaching fellow role for the past three weeks and it's been, um, I've enjoyed it. It go, two hours go really fast. Prepping for it is very minimal. Um, it's more a matter of um, listening, right? Listening to what the students are getting from the material, guiding them, answering their questions. Some of the students that I've um, had the opportunity to connect with um, have reached out because they feel maybe like they're not experts on the topic, like they might not be undocumented, they might not have parents who are immigrants. So um, just reassuring them that this is a space for learning and a space for growth and um, letting them know that, you know, I also had some learning to do within the class that they're taking. And it's just a process, right? I think oftentimes as students, we want to get to the end, to the end, right? Get to that point of, in, in time where we feel like we know what we're talking about. And, or we see, especially on Zoom, when there's 77 other students who are taking up space and you feel like, oh, what I have to say is not relevant or important. It's good to remember that it doesn't hurt to raise your hand and participate, you know, like, um, I think your opinion matters. And, and that's something that I've been learning to tell the students in the class that, you know, don't worry, just, I took the class and you take away from it what you put into it, right? And so, you know, it's a process and we're in a different space. We, I didn't take this class online. So there's a lot of factors, right? The class is bigger, the class is on Zoom, the class is um, on this topic and we're not grading you on participation. We're just grading you on presenting, on, on attending the class and presenting yourselves and asking the questions. So it's more for your learning. So it's been interesting. Um, and what else? Yeah, just navigating what? The fall, right? Um, applying for PhD programs. I started my UCLA PhD application about two weeks ago. I attended a webinar. That was very informational for me, like just to go through it again. And I started my statement of purpose. So today, for example, my friend and I got together and started working on our essays, just dedicated a space and time to work on them, just create that coffee shop experience, right? We had our coffee, we had our music, we had our, you know, tasks at hand. And that was helpful just to get into the groove and getting things checked off our lists of um, things that we have to do in order to, to submit our applications. So that's exciting. And um, yeah, so um, pl making plans for, for the holidays as yeah, best I as think, we can. And I think it's interesting because when you mentioned about student participation, um, I am one of the like early alert handlers. Um, and if, for those people who don't know what early alert is in the CSU system, well, it depends on what campus you're at because San Jose State is 
does not have a clue what it is. And also some, some important feedback is also from my perspective is like early alert is not early. It's very late because that's when the student is already showing some signs of disengagement. They're not turning in assignments. They are participating um, or maybe not even showing up to class. Um, just some early signs or some, some, some signs of the symptoms of what is what the student is going through. And so um, I think it's important that, you know, if students are participating, like what is a form of participating? Because even with you and I, like, I usually am the one who can like respond on a get-go and like oftentimes talk a lot more in the podcast episodes, but also it's Ariana's level of comfort too. You know, it's about what are ways that you are participating behind the scenes or contacting people or doing things. And so if you're a student who does not like actively feel comfortable talking in class, um, the chat box is also an, a feature um, going to office hours for any of the, you know, people that are either the TAs or the second faculty or the whoever's teaching, like it's important to engage in a different way, um, going to events, Doing, doing some extra credit, talking to the people one-on-one, -on -one, if you're a better person in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Um, those are all just ways that you can just engage because I think if you just sit in the metrics of what participation is or what grade is, you're not gonna really learn anything. And I think this is the conversation I wish more students or even more faculty could talk about. Um, and even the assignment, like the post that you had shared, Ariana, on our Instagram or yeah, Instagram story about what are we doing for if any of our students is has a loss due to COVID or due to anything under this pandemic? Um, being very careful. And I think the error that a lot of faculty do and even staff is not reach out to the student first before already creating alerts or creating this like, you know, big deal about them not participating. I'm like, are, are we doing a big deal because we're going to grade them and penalize them? Or is it because we're generally out there caring for the student in a way that makes sense for each of their, each of their personalities and each of their, their needs, uh, which is a little bit harder when we are also running on a half empty glass um, with us too, the things that we're dealing with um, as working professionals and and I really enjoyed like the, the conversations that we've been having in terms of like what are ways to engage students. And I think um, just providing students just an unstructured connection contact thing for them just to either say something or look at something funny. Cause I think this is what we're missing. And, and I think this is the thing that I really am grateful for my family is the sense that when things get down and low and just sad that we also know how to celebrate and you know celebrate the small and big things in our life that we still have because the big takeaway that I've been telling students is, especially the students that I've been meeting with on probation which are very heavy conversations sometimes is teniendo vida todo se puede I think you don't have to complete or end something just because that's how you started and set the tone. I mean, that's how the tone started, but that's not how you end. And there's this whole huge like need and anxiety that students have of graduating at a specific time. And I think it's so hard to undo that and let them know that adding that minor, you know, or 
declaring a second major or pursuing graduate school in a different timeline, like it's like, it's okay. It's all right. We're under a pandemic, you know, if anything, this should be easier for us to, to try to stay away from all these like huge societal norms and expectations. But I think it's even harder um, to do so. So I think if I could just tell students to stop performing <laughs> these things, that would be awesome. But I think that's the hard part. Right, right. And I mean, I, and that's, that was something that I converse with the professor is that the students don't know what we're grading them on. And honestly, we're, we're not grading on participation, but they're worried, especially freshmen who are taking this class. Freshmen in college and undergrad are worried about their grades. And it's like, it's taking me a long time to realize and, and learn that grades are not everything. And that's something that I tell my, my brother, who's a freshman in high school, is that as he shows me his grades, right? And, you know, they're good, but I'm like, the most important thing is that you're learning. And if you're not learning, that's when you reach out to the faculty or you reach out to your instructor, or you reach out to your teacher to fill in the gaps that you're not getting, right? And it's, it's the learning that you want to make sure that you're getting. Yes, the grades are great. It helps you to get into great colleges, et cetera, get you scholarships, but it's not everything. So no, and even like white people, I'm telling you, they pay people to teach them other skills. Mm -hmm. It's not the actual, you know, um, institution that is providing everything. So I think it's important for us to know that there's different ways and processes of learning. And sometimes for that semester, especially if it's not a good semester for any of you or any time, if it happens, you're learning something, you're doing something and you're just trying to reassess and you're allowed to make a mistake. You're allowed to not have a good semester. And I think that's even harder in the conversations that we've been having about how do you best serve um, minoritized students, especially under a pandemic. Um, I've had way too many conversations with students saying like, it's, you need to, especially with immigrants, I think this is the conversation I had with the people who have been on probation, is that you are learning so much more than your other peers. And that even there was this one student that I had a conversation about that they, the, they immigrated eight years ago. I'm like, and we came to the conclusion, I'm like, you're not the same person who came eight years ago and look at all that growth. Your GPA isn't giving you points for all of that stuff. But I think that's, that would be kind of weird because then we're going to go into a black mirror discussion of like, why are you gaining points for something? You know, like that's, you're not trying to accumulate points or anything like that, but you are growing as a human being and, and you're adapting and you're changing and you're also looking at different systems. And I think the person was like, that was such a great conversation. And they were talking about them wanting to share this experience. I think this is beautiful. I'm like, yes, you should share. And I think students don't have enough platforms to share what they're going through. And that's why they're thinking that they're the only ones going through that boat. Um, and so I think now we're in a direction where we're creating like let's talk spaces where we're having students be able to talk about what it's like and what they're going through in a space, except students are not showing up because I'm like, they're tired of Zoom, like, which is, you know, you look at different platforms. Like um, I was looking at a different platform called gather.town, 
where it's like a little video game, a Minecraft version looking where you can meet up just kind of like Zoom, except there is a paid version, which a lot of institutions are not paying for. But you can meet up and do like presentations in there and also assess internet is an issue. Um, if you have really spotty Wi-Fi or even spotty, um, what is it called, access or something, it's going to be challenging for the students to have that experience too. So there's no good way of like addressing this other than, you know, institutions doing their job and also counties doing their job to providing, I'm like, you have a budget of Wi-Fi, why, and you have probably multiple institutions in that city that you could assess and give broad Wi-Fi to the whole city. I mean, you're paying for it and not a lot of people are there in the first place, but you know, that's another issue to discuss, but engagement is pretty low among students and it's because of all these things. And honestly, if I had been a student during this time, I don't know how I would be performing just because energy wise, it's not the best. You know, the fact that you show up to your class is a lot. The way, the fact that you are, you try to participate means a lot. And just know that teachers notice it, TFs notice it, you know, like it's not everything. And just give yourself a break and give yourself some break, um, grace. Don't feel pressured to, to participate if you don't feel like it or connect with your faculty or teacher to let them know how you're doing because, and I tell this to my brother all the time, they'll make assumptions, right? So you want to get ahead of that and you want to let them know what's really going on. And communication is key, especially in this virtual world. Yeah, and also um, just, you know, I think the, the, the strongest thing that I've seen is just students not know how to communicate and faculty not know how to communicate and staff don't know how to communicate. So this is like a huge issue where all of us are making assumptions of what is happening. And especially when I'm getting all these alerts, I'm like, the first thing I'm thinking, I'm like, the faculty definitely did not talk to the student. And I think that's the frustrating part is that faculty are not, like every single one of us has a role and we're not doing our roles. Um, and when faculty do reach out, I think that makes it easier for us. Um, so if every single one of us could do our job and try to do it well, it would be easy. But I think that's the hard part is that we're all kind of like have different ideas on how things should get addressed. And we don't know how to have those conversations. So when I talk with the, fa with the students, I'm like, and they're talking about these, I'm like, yeah, well, and the way that campaigns work, right? What is always the outcome? I always ask my colleagues, I'm like, what is our intended outcome? What is our input? How are we assessing if we did it right? Um, and does it serve and center the students? And especially minority students, because I think that's where we're missing out on a lot of these campaigns and initiatives and strategic plans and all that stuff. But Yeah, so um, thank you, uh, Patricia, for checking in, because I think it's definitely needed. And, and it's a real feeling to, to share how we're dealing with life, right, in our particular spaces and workspaces. Um, and with our upcoming speaker, uh, would you like to introduce them? Yes. 
We have uh, Danae Joseph, pronouns she, her. Danae uh, Joseph is undocumented and Black uh, DACA recipient and immigrant rights activist. Uh, she immigrated to the United States at the age of seven years old from Belize, Central America. Danae is accomplished public speaker and a regularly sought after media commenter on immigrant issues and has been vocal about her undocumented and Black experience. She has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, Essence, Vogue, The Guardian, and the Los Angeles Magazine's historic immigrant issue, among others. Currently, Danae works as a communications strategist and racial equity consultant. Most recently, she created the Undocumented Black Girl podcast. Because as a Black DACA, a recipient from Belize, she wanted to reclaim her story and be the author of her own narrative. Danae is using the podcast to inform listeners about politics, from the lens of a Black woman who happens to be an immigrant and to provide commentary on hot-button social issues. So welcome, Danae. How are you doing? I'm good, Ariana. Thank you so much for having me. You and your wonderful co-host, Patricia. I'm honored to be here with you all today. So um, just briefly for context for our speaker, for our audience, um, we met, um, or I knew about you in 2017-2018, uh, your activism, your involvement in the community, uh, you're an immigrant activist, and I invited you to be part of our um, immigration um, speaker series in 2018, the spring, at Harvard University, and you came and um, gave a talk with uh, Dr. Cornell West and um, one of our uh, immigration lawyers about what it's like to be an undocumented black immigrant, right? Um, and giving that intersectionality of being an immigrant while being black and how both, you know, identities collide and how we share similar experiences. So that's how we actually met, but can you share a little bit more about how that, you know, how that came to be for you and, and, what that experience was like for you? That was such a phenomenal experience when I received that email from you. Um, it was one of those things where I'm like, you know, you never feel as though your story is as powerful as it is in the process of telling it, right? It's like, it's my story. I don't see anything remotely like, I see something interesting, but I don't see the immense power of it. And I tend to not think about how my story actually moves beyond borders, right? And even though as an immigrant woman, I'm restricted by this very man-made notion of borders. And so whenever I have people tell me from different states or different countries that I heard you or I saw you, I'm always shook. And people are like, girl, haven't you been doing this long enough? Like, does that still surprise you? Like, I'll be at the mall with my grandma and somebody will be like, damn it! <laughs> and I'm like, uh, hi. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. Like, you never see it um, until it starts to happen more often and you engage in those spaces and conversations. But I was just honored by that invitation because it was alongside someone that I had long looked up to, Dr. Cornell West, right? Um, and being able to be on a panel with people that you've looked up to for such a long time, there's a power in that. Um, and it makes you that more passionate about wanting to take your storytelling to the next level and your work.
work and your advocacy. And Ariana, when I tell you, you are one planner, you plan the heck out of that event. Um, I remember we had a dinner right after with some of the other um, colleagues that you work with through the program. And it was just an incredible space. I think at that point, I was able to talk to one of your colleagues and tell her something that she hadn't um, knew to be true, whether her mom could fly in to her graduation. And she was like, I didn't know that. And she was able to get her mom to graduation, like things like that. There's such power in being able to share your story and the things that we think everybody knows, right? And we assume um, that you should tell it anyway right? Because you never know the impact that that one thing might have on someone else's life. So thank you so much again for inviting me into that space, allowing me to tell my story in a different way, and empowering me to really understand that there is power in my story, whether or not I thought it to be true or not. Yeah. And I've been listening to your um, podcast so far, and it's just so interesting how both of us kind of had the similar idea in terms of our both of our podcasts and our in our main mission was to bring in some issues and tell it in our way. And I think in our most recent workshop that we've been uh, that we were invited to to speak on, like, what is the importance about um, uh, someone, some people like us doing um, podcasting and telling our own stories and how, uh, how much, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure this might have happened to you in one of those interviews where in media you get told and you start, you know, talking about your politics and your experience and why you need to do certain things or why, you know, awareness needs to be, needs to happen more in these issues. And then you read the article and you're like, that was like not even a third of like what I just said. And, and you took out all the good stuff. So I think it's amazing that you now, like you have your own podcast to discuss it in the ways that you think um, uh, plays honor to not only your story, but also um, your, your past and, and your continued work that you have. Because I think you do more, more work than what people are, are publishing in those things because they don't get to see the behind the scenes of the internal work you do. And also exactly. the kind of like, um, you know, like you get kind of intimidated in these spaces and you're like me going to these places. And so I think that gets missed in, in part of the, the publish and the media that other people, that other people are interpreting your life. Oh, absolutely. Like you're spot on about that. And that's literally the reason why I started the Undocumented Black Girl podcast. That was at its core, where I would do these extensive hour long interviews with reporters who proclaim themselves to be well-meaning and to be allies to the Black immigrant community and to the immigrant community as a whole. And I'm like, wait, I just did an hour-long interview with you and you didn't even think to include a photo of me right? Because that matters. It seems like minutia, right? Like in the process and in the grand scheme of everything, it's like, why do you need the photo? But you need that photo to be attributed to my story because more often than not, when stories about immigration are often told, you don't see my face. So you don't know what that photo can do for the next undocumented Black girl, right, who maybe feels as though there's not a space for them, that representation in this movement is non-existent. You don't know what that could do to someone else. So I think when we, you know, think about what social media, what um, Twitter, Facebook, all of these platforms, as well as podcasts, have been able to do for people like myself and you all, is immense, right? I'm able to invite guests 
I'm able to invite, you know, people who identify similarly to me, who maybe don't meet the mainstream media narrative of what being a guest or a participant or an interviewee on a famous magazine or article might mean. And I'm able to invite them and have the conversations and ask the questions that I see fit without a time frame. If we want to talk past in an hour, guess what? We will talk past in an hour. If we want to say, speak about these issues that people might not consider to be politically correct within the context of how we look at immigration, we're going to talk about it. No one is able to sit here and say that your story doesn't matter or no, I feel like this won't sell if you talk about this issue. Guess what? It's done enough because we're talking about something that I know our community needs. And I know that because I lived it for many years while I was in the shadows, right? As a black immigrant woman. And I know how I felt by not having my story be told or feeling as though there was no one who told their story like me or look like me. So it's important. And I love having that platform. And I most recently interviewed Senator Holly Mitchell and at the very end of the interview, Senator Mitchell said to me, like, I told her, I said, thank you so much, you know, of course, for being a part of this and, you know, being one of the guests on my podcast. I know you could have had a million and one other things to do as a candidate running for office. And she literally said to me, no, thank you, Danae, for creating the Undocumented Black Girl podcast, because a lot of people don't know Undocumented Black Girls exist. And I was like, don't you start on this podcast. Don't you start crying on this podcast. <laughs> Right. Um, but it was just one of those full circle moments. And it was a full circle moment because I don't even know if the senator remembers, but my first time meeting her was actually advocating for driver's licenses for all in my freshman year at UCLA and going up to Sacramento. So it was one of those full circle experiences that I didn't think would happen maybe until later on in life. Right. So that's what it's allowed me to do thus far. That's amazing. And, you know, even if they don't remember, you do. And it's something to, to remind them about, you know, like the lives that they reach and the impact that they make on your life. Right. And the, and, and the way that you uh, take their work or how you interview them, it all is very important. And that's why your podcast, um, is highlighting these interviews is highlighting like you said it doesn't matter how long it takes it's it's a real interview and the questions that you want are being made which is very important and especially coming from this lens that you have where i've been seeing a ton of media especially in terms of the coverage of politics and things like that and i've been following you on instagram and it's interesting because you bring up questions that normally other reporters wouldn't even talk about mm. or even touch in the same way um, and you also bring in a, in a different perspective where we're missing right like um, even in the right now that we're currently in Latinx Heritage Month and we keep seeing hella pale um, just uh, you know workshop you know facilitators and oftentimes people that are I'm like why is this white man from Spanish talking about issues and saying cultura like what is that even all about yes. right? because yes. When we're talking about issues, it's pretty Mexican-centric. And Ariana and I have been talking about this where I'm like, why do, like, we get kind of, you know, like those question marks where it's like, we don't fit into this like generic stereotypical media, Latinx pop culture stuff. And 
that's not in our center. I think that's the important part is bringing guests that talk about issues in a sense. And it so happens to be that they have this identity, but I'm like, we're not in a monolith. And I love that first episode where you're talking about because of the erasure, because of this whole us versus them uh, situation, then that's when we start thinking about that we don't have a lot of things in common. Mm. That all these issues and the way that they translate in our lives are because it's coming from the same the same machine the same you know systems oppressing us globally and that we have so much more in common than than what we perceive to think and for us in higher ed and how we experience you know the very different ways of how we're navigating the system is how we end up you know, feeling so isolating, feeling that you had to be in the shadows for so long because media didn't represent immigration in the way that you have personally experienced it. Exactly, exactly. I mean, to put it into perspective, to tell you how much media has shaped the way that we look at representation or the lack thereof within this movement. Yesterday, I was in an Uber coming back from my godson's um, first birthday party. And the Uber driver said something about, oh, you know, like, what was the party? And I told him, I'm like, oh, it's my godson's first birthday party. But with us as Belizeans, you would think, you know, it was something much bigger. And he was like, oh, you mean Guatemala? Right? Because there's this common trope within media that Belize belongs to Guatemala, right? And so you'll have a lot of Guatemaltecans say, oh, well, Belize is in a country. That's our country, right? It's like one of the islands that we own. And so he went as far as to say, is Belize even a part of Central America? right? This was something that he said, and he kind of tried to play it off in a joking manner as I responded, right? Because I'm not the one, honey. (laughs) And so as I responded to him, he's like, oh, like, is Belize even a part, you know, with a joking voice, is Belize even a part of Central America? But it wasn't a joke. And the reason that I know it isn't a joke is because for so long, historically, folks have internalized that notion of Belize not being a part of Central America. And why is that? It's because predominantly the majority of Belizeans look like me and are considered to be Black. And unfortunately, right, we tend to look at those preconceived notions and that media depiction of immigration, of what it means to be from Central America, of what it means to be a part of a Latinx community. And so we tend not to see Blackness purposefully, right? Because there's a lot of anti-Blackness. There's a lot of colorism that takes place within our community. And folks don't want to admit to the fact that, wow, you know, Latinx, it doesn't look like just one thing. It isn't just the pale folks who speak Spanish. It can be some Black folks who may not speak Spanish, right? And I think there's no better representation to that anti-Black fact than the video of Sarah that came out in which she was singing, right? And that girl was going in. No one could have told her anything. She was singing her heart out. And people were just so anti-Black in the comments. They just couldn't fathom a Black woman speaking Spanish, right? And they couldn't fathom that she came from a Latinx family, right? That she was adopted into a Latinx family. That's how much anti-Blackness is rooted into our families, into our communities, that whenever we think of immigrants, not only do we think Latino, but we think Mexican. It's that bad. 
right? It's to the point where people don't even look at Salvadoranians. They just look at Mexicans. And it's unfortunate because it's such a disservice to the diversity that we have as a community. The fact that we have AAPI folks, right? There's even white folks. But the only difference is they don't call the white folks immigrants now. They call them expats, <laughs> you know? So it's the double standard. But that double standard comes from media depiction. Unfortunately, and especially as academics, right, we know that folks tend not to do their due diligence and read the data and read the sociology of how constructing race and ethnicity and all of these things came to be. And so because folks don't do their due diligence, we're left to just consume the quickest thing that we can consume, which is media. And so that's why we have the depictions and that's why it's important that we have spaces like this one where we're able to grapple with the reality of the historic viewpoints of our communities that tend to be problematic by and large. Yeah, and also like the, the, the it's interesting who gets tagged in this whole Latinx heritage months of accounts that you should follow and things mm -hmm. like that. And, and it's interesting because Ariana and I made a purpose uh, in this podcast to say like, we're not going to discuss or center specific ways and how media has pre previously discussed um, by a black indigenous people of color in, in academia, because I think mm -hmm we oftentimes just dismiss the people who are marginalized to just fit in this nice, beautiful, like Latinidad of like, oh, we, we, we are so happy. We have great food. And I'm like, <laughs> although that may be true, but there's, it's, we're dismissing the people that were, it is not like those ugly things that we are a part of and we also contribute to. Mm. That in essence, we, like that is part of our, you know, like when, when I've seen TikTok, the comments of like, you're invited to the carnasada, you, um, you know, we do all these things that I'm like, this stand culture of like, uh, not really thinking about when you're talking to other people, especially I've seen like Asian and black uh, content creators in TikTok um, sing a song or a corrido. And it's usually something Mexican, right? Like, and then they're all like, we're invited to the carnasada. I'm like, but first of all, like you don't think about how multicultural or multi-ethnic we as Latinx are, right. that I'm like, they were already in the carne asada, you know, like, it, it, and it's also right. like, it takes away from carne asada as a cultural thing that we all experience. And I'm like, in my family, we don't really eat meat in the sense, we don't eat a lot of red meat. So I'm like, it, then we start thinking about this whole chorizo test thing where it's like, how Latinx are you and how you're mm. not? And and taken away from, I mean, and, and the whole deals of like, we don't claim this person or we do claim. I'm like, first of all, we have to acknowledge and claim that although you may not believe with whatever the person is talking about, because I see that on the comment section of like, oh, this person, especially in the anti-Black comments, oh, we don't claim them or something. I'm like, we have to claim them because that has been historically our reaction towards events like this. Hmm. And we have to bring in those people in our families that are talking about this and saying, I don't like we need to speak more on there are, you know, black Latinxes and and migration in general is very, you know, complex where it's not just Mexicans that are being detained and and the erasure that happens in so many different levels right. um, because we just are, are not used to Spanish media talking about those issues in a way that 
our parents could understand it. And I think that makes it even harder, language barriers, cultural barriers, and even the tools to understand it. But I'm like, we're still, even if it didn't come from malicious intention, I'm like, it still has a huge impact for those people that are the most affected. Right. And I mean, even let's look at most recently, right? Your last point dealt with Spanish media. Let's think recent. What was the most recent thing that we saw, right? We saw a revolutionary time in most recent uh, American history in which we've seen uprisings, not just nationwide, but across the globe. What happened, right? We saw Telemundo, we saw Univision perpetuate a lot of anti-Blackness. And what did they report? Instead of reporting why it is that us as the Black community were doing this work, why were we on the ground? Why were we protesting across the nation? We were protesting the systemic violence and the state-sanctioned violence that continues to impact Black people in this country. And the fact that Black people are disproportionately impacted by a lot of the systems, right? Um, and so this idea that out of all of that, out of saying that Ahmaud Arbery was literally lynched. This was a modern day lynching in which a group of men decided that day that they would be the judge, jury, and executioner in Ahmaud Arbery. And then the same thing with George Floyd in which a police officer literally kept his knee on his neck and other officers stood by and watched it happen. The same thing goes for Breonna Taylor, right? In which we just saw this verdict this week that had nothing to do with her black life. It had to do with the white lives of her next door neighbors. And they were literally by way of that verdict saying that the drywall, that the bullets that hit the drywall was more important than the bullets that hit her body, right? That's how much America doesn't care about black people. And so this idea that we saw out of all of those realities that the only thing that Telemundo and Univision focused on was the looting as though looting and blackness goes hand in hand. And I watched it, I pay attention to media of all kinds, and I watched them do this, in which they didn't focus on anything, they would ask guests, you know, how they feel about the different issues, and instead of folks saying, you know what, we can actually empathize with the black community, because which community should just accept the violence that's done to them? Which community wouldn't fight back? we saw them talk about looting. And it's an unfortunate reality that time and time again, that we don't really show solidarity for one another, right? Patricia, I think it's so unfortunate. Um, in a way, you know, I just finished watching the documentary about Vanessa Guillen. And that story is heartbreaking on many levels. To see the manner in which it was handled by the government, by that base, and what I saw people do with her story was to me such a disservice to her legacy. People took her story and utilized that to be anti-Black because the person who killed her was a Black person. Why is it that we're unable to, especially within certain communities, separate the actions of one from the actions of an entire community? When every other community does something, it's indicative of that one person. But for some reason, whatever one Black person does something, it is some way, somehow indicative of the whole community. We have to do better at checking the anti-Blackness within our families, right? Because there's a lot of folks who talk about anti-Blackness and are posting their Black squares with abuelas and abuelos and tias and tios who are hella anti-Black, right? 
Um, and it's the reality because I'm from Central America. I understand the colorism that takes place even within my own family, right? Um, so I think it's just about doing that work, like you said earlier, to understand that it's not just a me versus you. Like the same thing, you know, I often do workshops about addressing anti-Blackness. And I did one not too long ago and I was able to find one of the images from the Library of Congress. And, you know, you, we've all seen segregation signs. And those segregation signs are usually just like no coloreds or whites only, coloreds only, blacks only, etc. But this sign in particular said no coloreds, no dogs, and no Mexicans. And so this idea that it's, oh, y'all black people over here, you know, us over here, and that's it. No, historically, the disenfranchisement has been of Black, Latinx, Indigenous folks. And the sooner that we come to that realization, I can assure you, your, you know, your listeners, that we would be better off to collectively create a better future for all of us. Interesting when you're talking about the history, right? And the way that we have remembered um, and we are told and retold certain things. And I, and I wanted to bring up this post from Ariana Brown that discusses the article is being Mexican does not automatically equal being brown, uh, where it discusses about the movements that happened in the 50s and 60s. And just to summarize it, in the 50s, Mexicans claimed and wanted to claim being white in the 50s went to Supreme Court, did all this stuff, and then co-opted in the 60s, the black movements that were happening all across America. And now decided to come in and say, oh, we just forgot a decade ago. And it wasn't even a decade ago, it was less than that. That, that was the issues that we were claiming is that we supposedly were treated as white. Hmm. But then later on in the 60s, oh, let's just co-op things. And this is what we do. This is our, this is our actual, you know, history. Um, that, that's what we do. And we're also, you know, sexist and all that stuff too, transphobic, homophobic. And so those are the things that we have to come into terms, even if we are not actively doing it all the time, yet right. we are benefiting from all those things all the time. Hmm. Oh, that's so real. <laughs> I love that you're like, I don't need nobody to go in on my community. I got it. <laughs> I mean, no. And I, and I say that in a joking way, but it's so real, right? It's like, that's, that's how I feel. Like, I'm not oblivious to the fact that some of my people can be xenophobic. Like, I'm a Black immigrant, and I'm cognizant of the fact that, unfortunately, there's a lot of folks, when they think of immigration, they're just like, mm-mm, no, right? Not even thinking that there's people who look like me and it shouldn't even have to be about that right it should just be as a people who've experienced disenfranchisement we should be able to understand that this state is literally trying to deprive people whose lands were brutalized right and are now forced to go elsewhere and to migrate out of a matter of survival right? Many of the folks who have immigrated and have taken these perilous journeys would not have done so if everything was, you know, fine in their countries of origins. We wouldn't do that because it's such a treacherous journey. So who would put themselves in the line of fire for something that wasn't absolutely worthwhile to their survival and to the survival of their children? And so I know that better than anyone that that is real, that the xenophobia is real, that the colorism is real, sometimes the internalized white supremacy is real, right? Um, but it's about addressing 
what can we do as communities to really understand that you can't talk about immigration, right? And what's taking place with detention centers without correlating it to mass incarceration? Because it's the exact same system, just by a different name, right? We can't talk about anything that's taking place with family separation, at least from my perspective, without talking about what took place during the transatlantic slave trade and knowing that families were split up then. That was the origins of family separation. Um, and even when we think of racial profiling, we can't think of the fact that immigrants are disproportionately impacted due to their ethnicity, their race, and the fact that they have a status that isn't something that's beneficial in this country. So when you mention, you know, that article, I'm like, wow, like, thank goodness for folks who are interrogating these narratives and are actually saying, listen here, we benefit directly from the movements, even when we look at this current movement for immigrant rights. There is literally leaders who have said, what have Black people ever done for immigration? I think of people like Don Wooden, who literally put her life on the line to say that ICE was performing hysterectomies on women without their choice, right? Which is eugenics, <laughs> to be clear. Um, and she didn't have to do that. She could have went on on her happy citizen way and allowed what was happening to continue to go on without any consequence to her. And so this idea that we think of even the movement for Black Lives and the three co-founders and knowing that one of them is specifically an immigrant woman from Nigeria, how can you say that Black people don't care about immigration? How can you say that our movements are disconnected when you're right, exactly like what you said, that much of the movements that we have now stem from the civil rights movement, that the liberties that are afforded to immigrants stem from Dr. King and the Civil Rights Act, right? And the Voting Rights Act, and then eventually came the Immigration and Naturality Act that opened the door against the basis of discriminating on folks for race. That came from the civil rights movement. Do you think that this country would have opened up our immigration system and our visa system to immigrants from all over the world, if not for the civil rights movement and Dr. King and the other leaders interrogating the fact that all people matter, no matter what race or ethnicity that they are, it wouldn't have been possible, at least not within the same time frame, not within the same year of 1965, it wouldn't have happened, right? And so I'm sick and tired of hearing, what have black people ever done? Like, let's talk about history. Let's talk about the fact that, and I always say this, to me, black people in my community, we're the levy that keeps white supremacy away from other people of color. We are the levy, right? The same levies that broke during Hurricane Katrina, we are that levy that is still standing strong and keeping white supremacy from hitting the remainder of people of color. And it's unfortunate that folks don't see that and still continue to perpetuate anti-Blackness um, and all of these other isms because they feel as though they could benefit directly from white supremacy when in fact <laughs> you are probably a hop and a skip away <laughs> from being impacted by the exact same thing if you're not already and also like the the conversations of now that like everyone else who has privilege uh, claiming to be the victims of the very thing that you know and it's this theater of going and talking and the way that all this media is talking about and at the end they want to claim victimhood which is you know a direct you know 
line of what, how white supremacy works. Yes. The people who are the ones who are the most privileged then turn it around the tables and manipulate you into thinking that it's your fault. Mm. It's, it's this whole gaslighting of discussion and, and the way that um, people have been talking about media and taking it away, right? Like all these commentaries that they happen. And then they start making the backgrounds of what happened to the people who are whistleblowers and saying like, well, let's bring in this whole backstory of like what happened. I'm like, at the end of the day, what did the rest of the people in the detention center do? Hmm. I think we have to, you know, also be critical about that because other people of color have been also in those detention centers, been the active doers of something. And that person decided this isn't right, you know? And at the end, it's, it's still a black woman who at the end of the day was brave enough to say something, hmm. which I can't say much for the rest of the people there. And we have to be critical about all the Latinx, white Latinxes that are in immigration detentions that are in border patrols. I'm like, what about them? Right? Because we can start, you know, going in circles over and over and over again about whose fault, pointing fingers, saying all these things. But at the end of the day, time and time again, because you have to look for it. If you're looking through, you know, nitpicking at whatever kind of facts and, and things that you want to, to, to fit your story, it'll happen. Mm. But if you look at it in a perspective where you're trying to address anti-Blackness, you can see, in fact, it will happen over and over and over again, which the media is not covering and will not cover. Nope. No, you're absolutely right. I, I remember an interaction <laughs> um, at the border and I, I just like I looked around and I'm like, wow, like it's it's our people that's there. I think. And this is something that I said like this week in wake of what took place to Breonna Taylor or what failed to take place for Breonna Taylor. And I said something to the extent of what's more dangerous, white supremacy at the hands of white people or white supremacy at the hands of black or people of color who have internalized white supremacy. Um, and while I'm still grappling with the answer to that, I some way somehow feel as though it's more dangerous from communities of color who were often taught to just expect to be on our side or expect them to at least be in line with the ass of the community, right? In order to address the marginalization of our community. And Daniel Cameron, a black man, the attorney general in Kentucky, a black man, but also a Republican man, but also friends with Mitch McConnell, right? He's also that black man. And so I think it is dangerous to assume the best intention of people simply because they look like us, right? That's not enough. That's why when we saw what is taking place with this election, or at least before we got to the point in which we have a candidate now, right? But in the process leading up, it was one of the most diverse pool of candidates that we've seen in the history of the United States of America. And I remember during a panel on TV and they asked like, why is certain candidates not doing better? 
And I'm like, that's because we're tired of being bamboozled. <laughs> you know, like we're tired of setting these expectations for people who look like us just because they look like us. We're now ready for the issues. Just because you look like me doesn't mean you will advocate for the same things or doesn't mean that you were historically disenfranchised in the same way as us, right? And so... <laughs> You know, I think about people who say, like, what she did wasn't that brave or she only did this because... I'm like, please realize that she could have went on her merry way, that she has children. She could have chosen the interest of her family over the interest of the families and the women who are directly impacted by these things. That there's people, and there will continue to be, I mean, even during the transatlantic slave trade, overseers were people who look like you and I, right? And we were sold on this narrative that if we do this, we would then ascend into a status of privilege and wealth. And because we will ascend into that status, that all of the factors that hinder people because of race and ethnicity no longer applies because now we have wealth. And nothing can be further from the truth. Money will not save you from the system, right? It will not save you from the forces of different disenfranchisement. It will not protect you from being the victim of racial profiling, all of these things. And so I think as communities of color, as BIPOC people, we just need to let go of that idea. And the second that we let go, and to that point, it also brings up what I've been hearing a lot of. And I think, Patricia, you hit on it earlier, that for so long, and even now, we have members of the Latinx community who are saying, well, soon we're going to be the majority in the United States of America, right? We will be that majority population. And while that is a beautiful thing, right, given the fact that this is a country that was built on the backs of indigenous people, built on the backs of my ancestors and immigrants, that, and to be clear, not every Black person is an immigrant, right? because we often hear this is a country of immigrants. No, this is a country of people who were snatched and forcibly brought here. So just to make that clear. But going back to the point of what being the majority means for members of the Latinx community, and I would urge you know, the community to interrogate what does that mean? What does that mean for positionality? What does that mean for internalizing white supremacy? What does that mean for potentially serving as the new majority that will subjugate Black people and other communities of color, right? Like, don't drink the Kool-Aid, basically, right? That being the majority doesn't end all disenfranchisement. It won't end all of the problems of the world. It's great. Um, but question, what does that mean for how you will treat other communities once ascending to that majority position? Exactly. And I think like we oftentimes think about in the future, what would that look like? But we have to think about this now because we are moving forward towards that, you know, majority of minorities, right? We're, we don't have to wait till we're the majority to see, to imagine what that change would be. If we start thinking about it now, we can then be better prepared for what that would look like then, you know? And I think like, oftentimes we feel like, at least for myself, I feel like if we, in that time of um, 
there will be a miracle. There will be this, you know, we will be better prepared. We will be, we will have all these systematic changes by then. But honestly, it's 2020 and we're still dealing with these things. We're still <laughs> having to go through these challenges right now. And it's, you know, like growing up, I thought that we would have these things solved by now. Like we wouldn't mm-hmm. be dealing with these issues. Um, and we're still having the most basic conversations mm-hmm. right now, right? Like we're still having to break some really basic concepts. And I think I just saw this video. Um, I forget what the name of the actress is, but came in and talked to one of the politicians. It was the Pettyberg, what's his name? Pete um, Bootyberg, <laughs> whatever it is. Okay. Booty gay, whatever. Um, he not well, Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg, whatever. <laughs> the guy that doesn't really do much but does a lot of harm. <laughs> that guy. So they were having these conversations, and this white woman was saying, "Well, we have to. White women are the ones who are, you know, and because of our proximity to all this power, this is what we do. We are making a like a." like a deal with the devil and this is what we do we want our nine i all of our ipads for our kids but we don't care about the water quality of this other place and she mentioned at the beginning and i think my partner really highlighted just recently that's how that's how she started the conversation just recently and i'm like Mm -hmm. all these people can spend 60 70 years of their life and just somehow right now just had this epiphany of how racial inequity works in the U.S. I was like, wow, what a, what a, what a wild concept that it means to just be mediocre this whole long and, you know, be okay. You know, like nothing happens. And the fact that they have to repair their humanity and they ended up going and say, and this is true, like white people should not claim or want to be the saviors of anyone. They should really think about their own sense of humanity. Right. But the thing that bothered me was really the, at the beginning, just recently. Um, and I'm like, it had to happen in this way. Like Black people had to die for you to start realizing this under a, pan- a pandemic, a global you know, thing for you to start realizing these things and for people to start reading books. And that's why I'm saying like your consciousness and your stuff, because at the end of the day, why are you doing that interview with that person? Yeah. Because you're claiming that you want more people to learn this, but I'm like, that shouldn't be the platform, girl. Like, you can still do these things, and why do we do it, right? Like, we do all these platforms, we do all this commentary for free, and oftentimes with little pay, if right. any competition. Right. Um, and we don't decide to do some contracts or some some deals with certain brands or things like that for our voice to be amplified. That doesn't happen for us. Nope. You can't go into a problem, like I can't go and do an interview with any one of those politicians that were, they were talking about and have my voice heard because that's and what that's the part I'm not going to go, disgusting. right? Like I'm not going to go to all this like platforms to just say the most basic things and, and <laughs> like upfront and personal with them and saying like, what have you, like, I mean, the clip was out of context. Most likely I didn't read the whole interview, but I think that's the clip that has been viral that has been circulating. Mm. And I think this is the part where the issue, I'm like, why are we amplifying all these white women and their voices while we should be discussing like the issues that we're talking about that center black people? And why is it accepted? 
Right. Why is it accepted? As if like that should validate our whole experience, the existence, because this white woman decided to say something that should have been said a long time ago and should have been corrected and should have been healed and, and discussed within their own community. And this is why we're saying like white people need to have this discussion with other white people. Mm. And it shouldn't be televised. It shouldn't be recorded. They need to have it all within themselves because it comes into the sense that I was like, Oh, you know, you're taking pictures with like, you know, for, for, for the attention. And honestly, that's what Toni Morrison said, right? Like that famous interview with Toni Morrison where the white interviewer is asking her about racism and the fact that she directly talks in every book about black people, black women and blackness. And he's like, what do you think we should do about it? And Toni Morrison says, white people have a very, very serious problem, right? And that problem delves with racism and they need to see about what they will do about it. And that is the most fitting response, right? Because it's often asked, and this isn't just with blackness, this is about any issue that directly impacts indigenous people, people of color. This is a common thread that we've seen in which we've been asked over and over to be the de facto educators, the unpaid laborers, and the uncompensated contractors, right, of telling stories and experiences that have directly impacted us and sharing the realities of what it's like to live in this country as a person of color. And we're, able, we're expected to do that from an early age, right? Because I know as someone who is the granddaughter of an immigrant woman, I know as an immigrant myself that we're often expected before we even receive those degrees, right? To be the lawyers, to be the educators, to be the nurse, to be the doctor, to be all of these things from a very young age, especially black children, right? Parents are having to talk to black children from the time that they're able to comprehend about race in this country because they don't have the privilege of not knowing because not knowing can directly result in them being in a situation, right, where someone approaches them in a manner and they have to then be the person to de-escalate as though it's their fault. And so this idea that a 30 or 40 or hell, sometimes 80-year-old white person doesn't know better, but that a 70-year-old or a nine-year-old, right? When we think about Tamir Rice, when we think about Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, any of the black boys that have been killed or the black girls that have been killed, they were expected to know better. And I think, Patricia, to your earlier point of, you know, we expect folks to know these things, right? But for some way, somehow, children of color don't have that privilege. They have to know, they have to know the right thing, know the authority figures, and that everybody else who's white or benefits from white privilege has the ability to go through the world and be woefully ignorant, right? And that's seen as okay, because when they do decide to learn, it's applauded. <laughs> I'm like, I remember the story about the, like, I think she was turning 90 something years old and she said that her wish was to be arrested. Do you all remember that story? 
and it went all around where this like 90 something year old white woman had told her children that her one wish for her birthday was to be arrested you know what privilege that is that you never encountered law enforcement you never had any run-ins with the law like you were never profiled um but yeah i i think there's a certain privilege well i don't think i know that when a white woman turning 99 years old or however she was turning she was more than 70 for sure um was celebrating her birthday and she actually could ask right to be arrested there's privilege in having to ask to be arrested black and brown people we don't even have to ask okay it, it happens to us and so this idea that a black child at seven and nine or even younger than that should know immediately and respect people in positions of authority and should just you know um what is it that we continue to hear if they would have just cooperated that wouldn't have happened but we've seen video time and time again. We saw Dylan Roof being arrested without incident. We saw most recently Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed two people and was taken in, not the same night, the next day in a different state. He was in Illinois, right? Like, to me, that was so mind-boggling to know that this man was literally driven by his mother across state lines to commit a crime and could actually turn himself, he didn't even turn himself in, child. I think he drove himself back to Illinois and then they caught up to him and he was arrested at that point. That is privilege. So this idea that we're automatically supposed to be the ones who just should know everything, should be conscious enough to always do the right thing. And even when we do the right thing, it's not sufficient. It's just, we, we're tired of being bamboozled, right? We're tired of these lies and these stereotypical notions that if you simply work hard enough, you'll become successful. Or if, you know, you're able to work um, and attend an institution of higher learning, that that automatically means classification into a different tax bracket and access into homes. What they won't tell you, redlining, what they won't tell you is it doesn't matter how much money that you have, that you will continue to be questioned, that you will be discriminated against, that you will be racially profiled. Oprah Winfrey is one of the richest women in the world. And a few years back in Italy, she was racially profiled in a store where she was trying to buy a handbag, right? So it doesn't matter how much money that you have. And to our earlier point about what success means to communities of color and what ascending to the majority means for Latinos, it just goes to show it doesn't matter how much you have, what your house looks like, what your car looks like, that that won't save you from white supremacy. Okay, that the only thing that will save us is our ability to recognize the collective <laughs> lived experiences that we've had and even if we don't have shared lived experiences because not everything is going to be the same that at bare minimum you should be able to recognize the humanity with black people and that should be sufficient for you to at least say you know what black lives do matter and all lives truly cannot matter until black lives do at bare minimum
right? Because we can get into the different issues and understand them in detail, but that's not always the case. But at minimum, you should be able to recognize the existence and the necessity of Black people's ability to be able to survive and not just survive, but to thrive at minimum. Yeah. And not to, and, and to the earlier point that you just made is people are saying all these comments about you know, you should cooperate, you should just do things. I mean, how many times do we hear that in different interpersonal connections to higher level systems? Like you should have mm. done the thing and then you get your thing, right? Um, but it's those rules and, and those conditions that only apply to white people. It's, it works just for them, not for right. other people with different identities. You can't just conform. And I think the way that we raise children in this world and the way that we interact with people who are marginalized is that way in that power dynamic structure where we want to continue to like we don't lie to ourselves like it's just interesting how people who have privilege lie to themselves so much to the point that they think that that's the truth and and they say one thing to other people and then completely turn around and they're two-faced and so, and then later on, I want to claim that, no, that's not true. And I think this is what we're fighting up against. People who have multiple faces, who are trying to claim and say us in different ways to us and then have a different discussion anywhere else. And this is what politicians do. This whole theater, this whole performance of mm. wanting to do things. And I think the thing that they don't like is people who are questioning, who are trying to deface them and say like, this is who you really are. And they cannot know how to address that. They just have such a hard time, you know, grappling with their own truths. Um, and so it's the thing that, you know, it, for all of us is however level of privilege is, is just making sure that you address it and also hold people accountable. And I think we just don't know how to give forgiveness. We don't know how to forgive in a sense mm. that it does not center but in my in my family, it's, it doesn't center Catholic ways of forgiveness and in, in, in belief. Mm. Because the way that we, um, I had this discussion today with my partner where we were discussing like, what does forgiveness mean? Like, what, how did we learn about this? And we were discussing, well, the way that you were supposed to, you know, address your sins is by confessing to the stranger in the church um, or someone who you know from the church. And that's how that, that supposedly forgiveness is to that person. But I'm like, we do not actually forgive and make amends to the actual person that we harm. Like, it's just this one-way conversation that never gets to that other person. Um, and what do we do? We get given uh, something that we're supposed to just repeat, as opposed to it coming from the heart. Like, we are told how to do these things, as opposed to us knowing and inst instinctively thinking about what would make sense for me, and have I even asked the other person what, it, what forgiveness means to them? What would it take for them to potentially repair the harm, but they may not forgive you, you know? And, and that's the thing that we can't address. Like, how do we heal with maybe potentially the other people not healing with you? Mm. And spirituality oh, and religion is just two different things, right? And, and I think when it comes to a religion that has committed, you know, lies, manipulation, genocide within many, many different countries. I think that's what we, we're, we're coming up against, how embedded it is, how we don't know how to forgive and how we don't know how to do that inside hmm. of someone else telling us how to do it. And, and as a Christian woman, I, I could relate. 
right? I, I could relate to that completely, right? Especially within the Black community. Christianity is something that is entrenched in every facet of our community, right? In which I'm a believer myself, but this idea of turn the other cheek has always been something that is a work in progress for me, that when people do you harm, right? And I think that's kind of key what you were describing to restorative justice and what that looks like. In like literally everything that you described is what restorative justice should be. Um, and it is for a lot of people who have perfected it. But this idea that we simply turn the other cheek, that, you know, the ultimate vengeance would belong to God, which, which is all true, right? But in the scheme of it taking place, it's a bit difficult for you to just be like, okay, okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, um, I saw this tweet, you know, Black Twitter always has tweets for everything. And I saw this tweet um, about Michelle Obama, you know, how usually it's like, oh, when they go low, we go high. And this person was like, well, when they go low, we go medium because I'm still working on my Christianity. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that is perfect. <laughs> because we're still working on it, right? And I, I think you're right about that. Um, and the larger implication of what you were talking about, which is that we do need forgiveness as a community, and we need to do some forgiving. Because I think one of the last in things, and I know one of my professors at UCLA in undergraduate um, said this, like one of the last in remnants of enslavement was this idea that they taught us to hate one another on the basis of many different things, right? We were taught to hate one another because of the color of our skin. If, you know, traditionally based upon the notions of how it was formulated, some folks worked in the field, some people worked in the house. Indigenous folks were told that if they do this, that they would have a better output, right? Members of the Latinx community were told that if they do certain things, they would have the resources because they wouldn't have to compete with other communities of color who were fighting for the same resources, that it had to be you now them later or it had to be if we get the rest won't right like we were we've been told so many things that we've bought into that the only way forward is by us recognizing that it's not one another that is the overarching problem that while we may have problems within our communities that is true but that the last in problem that the remnants and the origins of our problem is not one another that we've been disproportionately impacted by some of the same things, we would then be able to forgive. And unfortunately, this is the same place that says never forget about 9-11, but tells Black people they need to forget everything that took place over 400 years and continues to happen, right? And so with a history like that, that is the lingering sin, right? That is the sin that people have not yet been given the opportunity because they don't want forgiveness. They want complete erasure of this story. And until we can recognize, there will be no forgiveness, right? Um, and that's for indigenous folks as well. Like I could only imagine indigenous folks and the thought process behind being native to this land and not even being given the basic rights of human decency and dignity. I. I like, I know what it's like to be a Black person, but my goodness, like, it's just another level, too. 
Um, and it's layered, right? And the second that we're able to engage in these conversations openly and honestly without feeling as though one another is being attacked, um, that's one. Uh, and I do recognize that even though I'm saying that, there's also a point in time, too, where we have to realize when it's time to give up on those conversations. Because if something isn't, and I know we're all people who have probably engaged in these conversations with family, um, especially as these issues are coming out day by day, where you just have to realize who is in a position that they're willing to grow and who is in a space in position where they simply don't want to learn, nor do they care to. Because unfortunately, to learn, right, the history and to understand the roots of what's going on is to recognize that what you have ultimately isn't as a result of your hard work, as we've been told. That it's a direct result of the murder and the lynching and the barbarism towards so many other communities and folks don't want to own up to that because to own up to that is to then say that we do have to give historically disenfranchised communities the resources that they've long been disenfranchised of right like to say that we recognize what the roots of slavery has done for the descendants of black people would mean that reparations would have to come right to say that we've stripped native americans of their lands um would be a recognition that we too owe them reparations and that we owe them land and we owe them so much more in order for them to thrive so it benefits folks not to forgive or to acknowledge, because in order to ask for forgiveness, you must first acknowledge what the wrongdoing was, right? So as a Christian, <laughs> it's an ongoing process that we're not perfect. That's why I'm like, who thank you, Jesus? I'm not Jesus, honey, because <laughs> I'm working on self. <laughs> I'm working on myself and I'm not there yet. Um, and the turn to other cheek, while difficult, sometimes I do, but I haven't perfected. So I think you're right. It takes time for us to get there. And sometimes it's as simple as forgiving ourselves, right? I think that's one thing we could be in control of. We can be in control of forgiving ourselves, right? Because oftentimes we've unfortunately been taught that things about us are wrong right, that our identities are wrong, or that speaking out about who we are is wrong. You know, for years, my family would tell me not to be as vocal as I am about my status. Um, and it took me years of saying to myself, no, you're enough. This isn't all of who you are. You matter. Your story matters. And just because they don't feel as though that's a story that needs to be told because of this notion of keep your head down and get through, I had to rid myself of that. And that meant recognizing that my status isn't all that I am, right? That I am much more, we're complex human beings. And that forgiveness allowed me freedom, right? Um, so sometimes it's not even about other people. It's like, mm, I might never get it from you. I might never get that forgiveness, but I could work on myself. That's something that I am in control of, fortunately. I love that. I love the way that you just summarized everything. And I think that's the, the root of the entire issue is just that you need to acknowledge and accept and remedy, right? Um, to that, I'd like to recommend, which I always recommend, is the, this book. I don't know that it's the best book, but it definitely is a start. It's called A Different Mirror by Dr. Ronald Takaki. Um, and there's a 
youth book, <laughs> youth version as well. Oh, wow. Um, and I think he does a really great job of like just um, contextualizing everything you just said with facts. And he looks at, you know, American history and separates all of the different ethnicities, races in a historical manner with facts, things that I didn't learn when I was in high school and taking U.S. history. So I definitely recommend that book. Um, and it's a start, right? Um, but moving, you know, to something that you that you said um, and thinking about, you know, stays away from the upcoming election. What are your what are your thoughts around it? And who are you rooting for and why? Oh, child. <laughs> Not you going there, Ariana. <laughs> um, oh, goodness. I, I just wish the state of our world was in a much better position, don't we all? Um, my thought process is either way, no one candidate is the answer ever, ever, right? Even if we weren't in as dire as of a position as we are now no one was going to save us. No one is going to save us. That having a Democrat in office, even as the vice president of a Democratic organization, I can say that just having one person in a position of power is not going to undo all of the vitriol that has been spread. It's not going to undo all of the hatred that has been unleashed. Um, and to believe so is a disservice to all marginalized people, right? Because there's been this idea, this really conflated idea, that it was only through the presidency of Donald J. Trump that we were able to be in this position that we're in. To be clear, folks have been living this for a long time. It's just the white folk and the people who benefited from white privilege that are now getting that reality check. We've been there, done that. Um, and so now when I hear, well, we have to do something about, where have you been? <laughs> where have you been? Black Lives Matter has been around long before 2020. Chapters of the movement for Black Lives has been around long before 2020. I'm glad that you're joining us now, but it shouldn't have taken that. It shouldn't have taken being in the midst of a global pandemic for us to realize that there's real cracks, or should I say craters, in the system that impacts folks. And you're just seeing it because it's impacting you. It's at your doorstep. And so when I think about the election, I'm like, wow, it's important that while I'm not extremely excited about who our candidate is and, you know, that that might be the temporary step that needs to be taken in order for us to get to a slightly better positionality of being able to bargain with that person in the White House, right? Um, but I'm not oblivious to the fact that it was also under a Democrat that folks, millions of folks were deported. Like, I, I'm not oblivious to the fact that a first term was had in which we could have had comprehensive immigration reform. I'm not oblivious. Um, so while I'm not excited about the prospects, I think folks do need to get out and vote. And while it isn't the ideal, while it's not the end all be all to vote for Joe Biden, that it is better than a Donald J. Trump second presidency, because if he did all of this, like he, this man is about to be on his third Supreme Court justice, third. 
Um, and President Obama had that over the course of two, that we do need to vote. And that even if you can't vote, right, because not every one of us has the right to vote, I don't. But I've utilized every single capacity that I've had to educate and get my family out to vote and get my friends out to vote, that that's what we can do. Just because we can't vote doesn't mean that we're not in a position to leverage our experiences to get those who do have the right to vote. And it is crucial. There should be no one saying that they're staying at home. This is, and I know a lot of folks have really said this and continue to say this, and I know you're probably sick and tired of hearing it for folks who are listening, but this is easily one of the most crucial elections in our lifetimes, right? And it's important. But what's more important is continuing to hold, you know, hopefully, if it's the Democratic candidate, Joe Biden, accountable for his actions. That after the inauguration day that we're not just like mm, we're done we did everything that we needed to the things that we were fighting for from you know 2016 to now is over our job is done no the job begins after inauguration day right because this is still a moderate democrat this is still a man who many republicans are able to align with because he's so moderate we still have work to do. And so the reality is we have much more flexibility to be able to work with this man if he were to be elected than we ever did <laughs> under the presidency of Donald Trump. So that's the reality. Um, but we have to be careful not to get complacent again, because I think we were complacent for a long time under the previous administration. We thought we have a Democrat, we're good, like, more often than not, they will advocate exactly for what we want. I mean, we saw a negotiation process take place between Democrats and Republicans in which the border wall was accepted, right, for the sake of DACA recipients. We have work to do, you know, um, and I need folks to get out and vote. And I need you to also vote in your local and statewide elections. I need you to recognize if you're in LA that we have a district attorney's race that's open and that Black Lives Matter LA has been continually calling for the removal of Jackie Lacey as district attorney because under her tenure, more than 619 black and brown people have been killed by the sheriffs and by the LAPD without any sort of accountability and millions of dollars have been funneled into this race by police, police union, and it's directly against the interests of the residents of LA and LA County, right? So folks do need to understand that there is not just the presidency, that you need to vote down the ballot and support who you can and educate yourselves well enough so that when that ballot comes in, that we understand that while you may not be going to the polls, while you may not be at the ballot box, then you need to fill it out and send it right back because we know USPS is under attack. We know that there's an effort to undermine the work of vote by mail, even though it's historically benefited members of the Republican party, <laughs> that there's an effort to undermine us. And so you all need to do your due diligence and ensure that your vote is counted. That's important. Yeah, and, and to have the conversations with your parents um, and your family members, whoever's around you, like yeah. about these things. I think the one thing that happens with people who have gone to higher ed and have connections to, you know, how 
you know, different industries work, it's important to engage with family members how this works. I think the last time that I had a conversation with my parents, my parents did not know of the things that Nancy Pelosi has done. And I think because they just see what, again, Spanish media is talking about, they just think that, you know, that's fine. And I think I told them, I'm like, I am not a Democrat. And they were kind of like, what? And I'm like, I'm not a Democrat in the sense that I am just full on gonna, you know, trust the Democrat party just because they're Democrats. I think it's important to note that a ton of politicians have been swapping different parties because they think that they can get away with it and they have been in terms of just because of the politics and I think I told my parents I'm like it's important to know the politics and the ideology behind that candidate because they can do just as harm Mm. and I think that they I connected it to how the um, government in Mexico works I'm like, it's the same thing. And so that's the important part is that you get to know what your family, especially if you're coming from an immigrant family, is know how they have viewed politics and stuff in their country. And for you to tell them how you, because they have so many similarities. I mean, they all have partnerships with each other. They're friends. So it's important for us to know that the global context, we can pull those knowledges together and really think about what is the best step moving forward. And I believe voting is one thing, and, but in my personal um, belief is mobilizing holds so much more power. Mobilizing does way more work. So if you can't vote, don't think that you, that's just it. You're just going to sit there and just wait for things to happen. I think it's important to know that all these movements have done way more than academia has ever done and all these other places have ever done. Hmm. They have made actual impacted change. Um, and the way that funding has happened in a lot of cities where they're starting to defund and, and retire a bunch of people, that's what we're looking for. That's the kind of movements that we're, we're the stepping stones that we need to get in order to get somewhere um, and somewhere fast within the next couple of months. Absolutely. And Danae, just one last thing about voting. What do you think of people who will choose not to vote for either party or for either candidate? I'll say while I do emphasize and stand on the side of I would prefer that folks were to get out the vote, I do understand why people are completely jaded, why people feel as though voting holds no power, right? It's because oftentimes in a lot of our black and brown communities, we voted for these people who we've believed in time and time and time again. And each of those efforts have resulted in no better outcome for our communities. I mean, I was raised in South Central. I still continue to reside in South Central. And no place, right, is more heard about <laughs> than South Central in the manner in which we've been failed, in which you could go down block after block and see abandoned buildings, like entire buildings that have the infrastructure to sustain so much more for our communities. We're in the midst of a food desert. All of these things that members of the community are being impacted by, and there's politicians, oftentimes politicians of color, who are in these positions but have done nothing to benefit us. So folks are rightfully questioning does my vote even matter? Does it make a difference? I mean, look at the fact that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote and still lost the election, right? It's not funny, but it's the fact. Um, so I, I see why people do that. And to those people, I think that goes to Patricia's point where 
yeah, you could mobilize and you could do not just mobilization for the purposes of the election. You could mobilize within your community and on a statewide level, on a local level to really impact the change that you could see right away. Like we also have a supervisor's race that's coming up, right? And almost like the Supreme Court, this tends to be a continuous appointment, something that folks will hold for decades. And so this idea that you're just not going to vote for anyone, vote your interests, right? Vote for the people who are around you on school board. You can't tell me that school board doesn't matter if you have children, godchildren, nieces, nephews. You can't tell me that doesn't matter. You can't tell me that supporting whoever the new sheriff is going to be doesn't matter when we see the in increased policing of people who are on the street protesting rightfully, right? And these are also the folks that tend to police the schools. You know, so there must be some issue. Find your issue and identify what you can do to support, you know, a candidate, candidates that directly align with that. And I know that it seems like hit or miss that we might find someone who actually will advocate for our community. But I think therefore you have that position as someone who is a voter, you can hold these folks accountable to doing the right thing and to truly advocating for you in a manner that if they don't do it, they will be checked. And guess what? Re-election comes around. And if these folks don't do what it is that they said that they would do and promised, that's where voting comes in once more. And that's where accountability comes in. And you can ensure that that person isn't re-elected. Mobilize in your community, identify the cause, whether that be immigration, criminal justice, addressing foster care, homelessness. There is a host of issues and nonprofit organizations and C4s that are doing this work on the ground that is outside of the realm of politics. And you can always find something that is to your niche so that you can impact change within that arena. Yeah, and to be careful on what is the issues that you end up, you know, if you're starting a movement, because I've seen this before, where a bunch of people end up trying to mobilize something that is already on the ground happening already, yes. and yes. you're co-opting that, that energy, and then trying to be friends with the police. So <laughs> you have to be careful in that too, where you have to do yes. your research, and if you in a position of, you know, looking it up in your local level do that look at who's already doing the work find what your strengths are and be realistic some people i think you should just donate and just move on you know and donate yeah, and move on. because i think there has also been more harm done by some people running for office who have no you know experience at all but they just have this awakening again this awakening that just so happened to happen in march 2020 as opposed <laughs> to years ago um, and so I think it's also important to be realistic, be honest and say, do I really have the skills? Because sometimes we have imposter syndrome for the wrong reasons uh, in the sense of like, you do have the thing, you do have the stuff and you don't do it. And then there's other people who have way too much confidence and confidently are so and strongly wrong, you know, where you're just like you're making more harm. So I think it's also, I think people are listening with, you know, one ear open and it goes you know, out, and I'm like, no, really be honest with yourself. Are you the best person to do that work? Have you no ins and outs of certain things? You don't have to know everything, but you at least have to know when an issue comes in, what is the harm that you're going to do when you vote or when you, when you're trying to fund certain things? Mm. Because I've seen way too many people of color 
are ass kissing certain issues and certain people and get corrupted. And I think that is better. It's just sit down, just sit down at home, donate <laughs> your money to the right people. And call, it a day. call it a day. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. That that's valid, right? Like if you want to identify something that's crucial, identify whether or not that already exists, because why is it that you're reinventing the needle when it already exists, when there's already organizations that have been doing this work and doing it well, right? Just because you don't know about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I think you're right. And I think that goes back to the earlier point of not all like, kinfolk or not all skinfolk or kinfolk, right? So just because you look like me doesn't mean that I should automatically support. And I think that's where our own due diligence comes from, that we shouldn't immediately just say, oh, that person has name recognition, because that tends to happen in a lot of our communities too. And I think that's what happened for the purposes of this election, in which a person has name recognition, we've heard about them for so long, and because that person seems more recognizable than the other person who's opposing them, that we go with that person and we tend not to interrogate, what is this person's record? What have they done within the context of 20 and 25 years to better the lives of the communities that they directly serve, right? And I think that's what we have to do. And we can't depend on other people. What, what I often have people do is, hey, um, can you just go through the ballot with me and tell me what you would vote on that issue? No, I can't do that. I could tell you my recommendations for that issue, but I can't blindly just tell you, here's what I'm doing, so therefore you should do it. Only you and your family can say what's best for you, your family, and your community. And just because an issue is impacting you in one space doesn't necessarily mean that people all across the nation are grappling with the exact same thing. So it must be tailored on a community level. It must be grassroots right, in order to have that level of success. And I think that's the thing. People think grassroots means not effective or not immediately effective because it tends to take years and decades and sometimes not even within our lifetimes to accomplish whatever the end goal of that grassroots movement is. But that doesn't mean that it's not successful. That just means that the generations to come will then reap the benefits of the work that we've inputted into whatever that issue is. And I think there's a power to that. Definitely. And with that, um, Danae, can you share a little bit about your future plan? And if you're looking at graduate school and how are you looking to make a, a bigger impact because you already are. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely still want to go to law school. I know, you know, at the time when we were at Harvard and, you know, you were kind of giving me or allowing me to experience as much as I could experience while there, it's still a reality. It's still something that I want to pursue. But for me right now, especially as a DACA recipient in which my life has to be planned on a two year by two year basis. And I think most recently they said that it's a year by year basis that I have to be a lot more cognizant about what that looks like immediately. And I don't want to do it in an era of uncertainty. Why would I take on the daunting challenge that is law school when I can't even know what my year is going to look like next year? You know what I mean? And I know a lot of people have been like, oh, well, people have done it. I'm like, I don't want that stress. <laughs> 
I don't want that stress of not knowing, you know, it's not that I'm a control freak, but I'm a control freak. And I'd much rather be in charge of what it looks like. Like, I, I don't want to take on something as monumental a task as that. And then also the other flip side of that, too, is because I'm caretaking for my grandmother, right? Um, and so it, it is one of those things where I do have to try to think what is God's plan, you know, and kind of grapple with that, where as communities of color, we don't have the privilege oftentimes, and I'm not saying this is the experience for everybody, but sometimes we don't get the privilege of being able to just go from, you know, undergraduate to graduate school to whatever professional degrees we want to pursue. We don't always have that privilege to do that because unfortunately our family is so dependent on the immediacy of the remnants of our higher education degree and what that means for the acquisition of wealth and resources immediately that we can't do it back to back like that, right? Um, so that that's what I'm currently in the process of doing. It doesn't mean that those thoughts have left my mind. It just means that I do want to be at a more secure place as far as my status goes. And that's unfortunate that I even have to think like that, that I know if not for that one thing that I would have probably already done it, but, you know, not wanting to pursue something on a such an uncertain basis, at least not under this administration in which every day is a new development. Yeah, and I think a lot of higher ed institutions, I think this is the conversations that Anna and I have been having in terms of how do um, institutions like higher ed institutions help undocumented uh, working professionals wanting to pursue a graduate degree. Um, I think this is the part where they do not address how they support undocumented students or potential students in their programs. And right. kind of, right. I'm like, the nationally, it could be something, but if the program could provide certain, you know, something more stable, I think that's where they can come in and do that supposedly, you know, anti-racist stuff that they've been <laughs> all like posting on their social medias and their, you know, statements or whatever that they've had. I think this is the part where a lot of, when I met um, and I've made different workshops, people don't address those. People don't talk about specifically how they will support specific student populations and the kind right. of resources that they can utilize within their own programs. Um, they just, the thing, even in my own graduate program, the whole thing was like, well, uh, we've never addressed this before. Um, so like figure it out on your own because it looks like you're doing really well. Mm. Um, and, and the fact that the student knows more than the actual professional, I think that's- oh, yeah. <laughs> We've been that happens like, so often. <laughs> it happens so often where we have to be the educators in higher education, right? I, I know that was my experience at UCLA, where when I first got there, people were like, "What, what does it mean to be AB five forty? Like, you you don't have a social security? Why did you forget it? All of those questions I would get, and it, it, it was night and day from the time that I started in twenty twelve to what it looked like when I graduated, right? Because you have a learning curve that happens where you have to be the person as a student who should receive resources. You have to be the one to tell that person in a position of power what the needs are, right? And I think that's where advocacy comes in. And Ariana, I know for a fact, did a lot of that by breaking those barriers meanwhile she was at Harvard, right? That she had to advocate for individuals like myself, like Yosimar, um, you know, like so many other individuals who probably wouldn't have been invited into those spaces to 
to engage in those conversations and educate the educators yeah. about these issues. And that wouldn't have been possible if not for the representation yeah. of someone like her at the intersections of those identities. Okay. So representation matters, advocacy matters, and fighting for yourself and the intersections of the issues that disproportionately impacts you what? matters because it's not one size fits all. Just because something benefited Bob doesn't mean it'll benefit Patricia, right? Just because Bob was able to continue and not, not my grandma talking in the back. <laughs> Well, for the purposes of the podcast, I guess that's true to immigrant families, right? Who who really don't have any regard <laughs> for what you're doing. They're like, listen, I'm living. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's important that we're able to recognize that it's not one size fits all. And that usually we don't have the privilege of just going through academia without having to fight, right, for our own retention and fighting to ensure that we're able to have success immediately after. Exactly. And not to put dirt on Harvard, but can you share a little bit about how it was to advocate for yourself to get paid for your participation in the events that I was coordinating? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I remember that process. <laughs> And it wasn't a hard process, to be clear, right? Uh, I don't want to make it seem, but it's one of those things where even though the person who's organizing, which at that time was Ariana, um, understood, right? She understood fully that there was a need, of course, to compensate people for their story because our story is experience and is expertise. But the institution simply did not provide the model to allow her to do that, right? She had to fight to say, wait, we should be giving her something because, duh, if we brought any other guest, if we partnered with the right department, then I know we would have an honorarium to give to that guest. But the only reason that we're not being equipped with it is because maybe, and I can't speak to what it is, but maybe our institution doesn't recognize the validity of the work, right? Because I think our budgets oftentimes, and as someone who organized in undergraduate, um, you know, to get certain people to come to our institution and to do this work, there is such a disproportionality between who gets what funding and for what. The second we would have performers, oh yeah, they have no problem dishing out $30,000, $40,000 for their writers, right? Because that's the technical aspect of their contracts. But then you bring in undock people and all of a sudden the budget is $250 to compensate them or $500. I'll never forget one time I did a panel and the panelists was paid 25,000 and me as the undocumented moderator was paid zero. Right? And it wasn't until after that I asked the question, what did this person receive in order to agree to come that I found out, right? Meaning that it was implied that you should just be grateful to get the opportunity, right? You should just be grateful that we even asked you to do this. And I think while folks may be well-meaning, the implication is so dangerous, right? That we need to just be appreciative of whatever it is that we get and we should just do it for the purposes of exposure. Like we're doing you a solid by putting you in this space. When it's not, because guess what? Exposure doesn't pay bills. 
Exposure does not ensure the sustainability of the people who are telling our stories. It doesn't do any of that. And so for me, it took years, Ariana. It took years for me to get to the point of advocating for myself to the degree of what I think I'm worth, right? And even still, there's a whole level of what we don't know, right? Like now I'm represented by a speaker's agency. When I was doing it before, in my mind, I had this expectation of what compensation for what I did look like. And I got exposed by being represented by this agency. It is triple what I thought, right? Just, I'm not gonna give a number, but this idea that I thought it was this versus what folks are actually getting compensated to do this work is wild. Right. And to be clear, this is only a segment of what I do. It's not all of what I do. But this idea that there's folks out there getting paid ten and twenty five thousand dollars for one event is wild to me. And so the, what I'm saying is we don't know what we don't know. I would have never known if not for exposure into this space. And that's where they have us at a disadvantage. Right. In which we've been told by and I, I don't know if you have the same experience but for me as an immigrant and someone raised by an immigrant grandmother we were always told to just simply accept what we're given because that's the best that folks can do not knowing that sometimes there's something sinister about the way that people decide who's worthy of what and that some folks may simply not want to pay you what they just paid the other person because they don't feel as though you're high profile enough, because they feel as though your story hasn't received enough, like, you know, airtime, what have you. And so we don't know what we don't know. And that's where allies come in to say, listen, here's what I could do for you. You know, I had a Latinx woman say, you know, we were partnering for a few months worth of a project. And she said, what's your rate? I told her my rate. And she said, you know what? I just paid the other person this. I'm going to make sure you get that same thing. She didn't have to do that. But like I said, because this was my first time doing something like that, I said one thing and unknowingly gave an amount that was less than what someone else who had done the same thing had done. Allies be allies and support the people of color that come your way in advocating for them in the same way that you would hope someone would advocate for you right and if you see something that you know is wrong like paid disparity wage disparity honorarium stipend disparity say something right because in this country unfortunately pay is indicative to a lot of people of what they think you're worth so use your privilege to advocate, use your positions of power to do what Ariana did and bring in the voices of storytellers that are historically not told. Yeah, and also refuse to get paid if the, someone else doesn't get paid. Yes. Or just yeah. say, you know what, I will take a pay cut for this event and give it, give that extra to that other person. Yes. Or something like that, right? And, and it's all about 
the people in privilege knowing all this access to information. And I don't know if you remember, but I had reached out to you in that same year that Ariana did. Yes. Uh, asking hey, if you could come into our campus. I had this idea of putting together this event for students and faculty and staff, the whole campus community. I did a, you know, um, I worked to do a, um, a form like a to get funding from the institution. The institution didn't even answer us. Wow. And so it puts us in a situation where I'm like, we cannot speak for all undocumented immigrants about the way that we are, or the needs of the students, right? And also the students are having a hard time having the tools to actually explain what their lived experience is because no one really gives them the context of why their situation is the way that it is. And especially geographically um, where we were at, it's important to know why. Why do you think that you're the only undocumented student period in this, in this space? And having guests that are knowledgeable, you know, that would have been a great experience to pay the amount and have a great big event. But I think institutions also have this, um, the, the recently this past year, refusing to pay undocumented creatives, undocumented speakers, the amount that they have asked um, and had agreed on in terms of their contracts because of these issues of payments, of being able to um, have that DACA uh, permit, like work permit, be a valid form of, you know, um, identity in order to get paid. Like all of these issues right. need right. work that need to be transparent in terms of, I mean, this is a sustainable work, right? If you have undocumented people speak on these issues and not just be one kind of undocumented person either. It's different types of undocumented people in conversation with the students. I think that's the important part to know and see the, the, that these issues is not a particular only one population um, thing that impacts them. Absolutely, you're spot on. And I think this idea that you're trying to pretend as though DACA as a program is sufficient an excuse to not compensate folks, when I know for a fact that there is ways that universities are able to, you know, call it a scholarship right or call it different things in order to justify it going to an undocumented person. So living in 2020 and saying that being undocumented is validation for not compensating their fo folks in this year is such a cop-out. <laughs> Have we learned nothing, right? Um, and especially as we talk about pay equity and what that means directly for folks, right? We can do better and we can fight for folks to get what they deserve. And I think that's where folks like you, like Ariana comes in, where we have to fight for our people, right? Because truly, really no one is gonna fight for us the way that we fight for one another. And that's unfortunate that I even have to say that, but I remember, you know, navigating the process to study abroad at UCLA. And there was literally, out of an entire department, one person that was tasked with understanding the manner in which UNDOC folks were disproportionately impacted and unable to go the normal process. One person. And everybody was being tasked with going to that one person. Why is it that the folks who call themselves allies to the community are unable to be well versed enough in these issues so that it's not just Patricia that has to be called upon every time it's an undock issue or Ariana. Why is it, right? And I think that's what we mean by act 
active allyship, that we're not just saying that we are, but that we're acting the way that we say we are. And that means fighting for our people. That means getting people paid for the work that they do. Because if you truly want our voices, you'll recognize that simply saying thank you or sending folks a thank you card when they're being disproportionately impacted by not one, not two, not three <laughs> issues simultaneously, you need to pay folks, right? Um, and then even if you can't do that, I think you need to be able to say, okay, you know what, I'm unable to do that right now, but in the near future, I have this coming up and I would love to bring you that. There's been times, and to be clear, whenever i'm asked to do workshops or trainings i don't know about the rest of the folks who do this type of work but i'm the type of person who if it's an immigrant organization which tends to be given less money right than any other department on campus or poc organizations tend to be given the least i'm always the person to say look what can you do all right no problem right and the agency will be like are you sure i'm like yeah perfectly fine because I have no problem doing it for community. What I won't accept is corporations, large institutions, large departments pretending as though they don't have the resources to properly compensate folks when you just dished out 200k for a keynote speech from such and such, right? So all of these things we have to be able to call out and say when things are wrong and fight for ourselves when need be. And if we don't feel comfortable enough, that's where our allies come in to say, that's not right that you're paying this Black woman less than we just paid this Latinx man. Do better. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, there's creative ways to get your undocumented folks paid and or find a creative ways to compensate them for their time just because they're undocumented doesn't mean that they're not eligible to get compensated. There's, like you said, scholarships, there's stipends, there's, you know, connections, networks, ways to just pay back the work. And if you're not able to pay them, then, you know, don't ask them to do the work. And you're right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, um, I want you to come. Like, for instance, I, I received this one book in one time where someone was like, oh, like, I would like to bring you, but we have zero resources to do it. And we want it for two hours, comprehensive training, like all of these things. And by the resources, why would you even go through a process of putting people through that if you're unable to compensate folks accordingly? And then there's there's different ways to compensate, right? Like I was saying, if you offer a waiver or you know offer a scholarship or offer I don't know like a session with something like there's always ways to bargain and like think about how you can create a package you know like where you can compensate the person for a specific thing like is there a dinner that you can give you know is there a food voucher from the from the campus that you can you know eat somewhere or stay at a place i mean there's different universities who have so many different things that they already paid for that they could also just allow you to use if cards and that's exactly what ariana was able to do right you know advocacy is key it might not be everything but it's a portion of what it will be
be a portion of what's important and what can be advocated on behalf of, right? So I think that's crucial. And it really goes to show that if there's the will to do it, it will happen. If there isn't the will to do it, then it won't happen. And folks won't fight for what's fair or what's just, so. Exactly. So as we're closing, Danae, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thank you for all that great, uh, those great tips, those re great recommendations. Thank you for all the insight. How can people who are listening find you? What are your handles? How can they connect with you? How can they request you to be um, a paid speaker on a workshop or um, a keynote speaker for their events? Yes. Okay. So they can contact me. Um, usually I say they could reach via my website at DanaeRandineJoseph.com um, or they could reach out to me via my other social platforms, which then will, you know, go through my normal website. And then if not, via speakout.org, which is my agency's booking site, and they could book me that way too. Awesome. Thank you so much for connecting with us and for your insight again. And we appreciate having you and your time and look forward to everything else that you'll accomplish in the near future. Thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you all. I apologize for all the breaks in it, but that, that goes to show this comms person needs to charge my phone. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you all. And then for all of our listeners, please listen to uh, your podcast is Undocumented Black Girl on all platforms and um, like listen to this episode and also head on over to your podcast. Um, to I appreciate that. <laughs> you have wonderful content. Thank you so much for your time. It was such a great conversation and we hope to hear from you and the future work that you have in any way that we can also help you. Thank you all. It was wonderful talking to you, catching up with you, Ariana, and then being able to speak to you for an extended time, Patty. Thank you so much. Bye y'all. Bye. So for our announcements, uh, we have a couple of new things that we're gonna do for this new season. Uh, we do have, we're revamping our Patreon. So now our Patreon is on a sliding scale version. So everyone will be able to access. There's no tiers in terms of people who are paying more, getting more things. Uh, we revamped it to be able to have people um, have access to some of those content that we have. Um, and also for you to um, sign up for the tier that makes sense for your budget. Uh, that's where we've created a space where we're giving more concrete advice in terms of students, professional uh, development, um, self-management. I have a couple of workshops that we have to record on just the basics about Graduate School 101 if you are in that stage. Um, and we also have more concrete things about the differences between different degrees. So there is masters, PhDs, and professional degrees that we can um, talk about more concrete. And I also have um, a workshop ready to record in terms of how do you prep for graduate school? Like how, what are some concrete things that you should 
some tips, things uh, to do and to think about in terms of what is happening. And we're also wanting to include some tips for our undocumented students who um, specifically how grad school works is very, very different in terms of funding, some things to think about, some things to consider. Ariana has a lot of tips in terms of what some schools have also told you, um, some things that you can ask and advocate for. Um, and we're also wanting to create future social media content. Ariana had, and I have been talking about like creating either like TikTok like videos or even potentially opening up a TikTok account. We were waiting to see what was gonna happen with TikTok before even creating content in there, um, just to be able to provide some feedback from um, women of color, especially in graduate school conversations, there's a lot of things that I've seen missing. Um, even the info sessions that we've been to um, don't talk about some of the issues or things that we go through on a daily basis that we should think about. Um, love to later on have you all follow. So when we have the account or things like that, you can also follow there. Uh, we'll post our videos there too on Instagram and Twitter. So we have both of that content all in our social media platforms. But if y'all could um, help us with our Patreon, that would be amazing. That all the contributions help us grow our platform. Uh, we're, we're buying a lot of materials in tech and also to compensate our future guests too, um, to send them a virtual gift um, and to continue creating. It helps us in our sustainability. If you're not able to um, sign up, we do have some a couple of posts on Patreon that are free that you can download and um, access. Uh, we're also going to um, start a discussion about like other things that we're going to announcements uh, content that we also are thinking about. Um, we have a couple of our um, one of our workshops that we created for a different campus. It's already recorded and you can access it there. Um, and just overall in general, if you can't pay for it, it would be really, really good if y'all could rate us on Apple podcasts. If you have an Apple um, tech device or something where you can uh, actually write in a review that would help us even more to um, for others to just be able to follow like find us because that's the, how the algorithm works in terms of um, people suggesting different podcasts share some episodes with people that you think are in the space love that some institutions are also tagging us in some of those recommended podcasts for students to listen to. This week's BIPOC shout out, we would like to highlight Miguel Miguel Shop. Uh, you can find them at miguelmiguelshop.com. They have really great, beautiful, comfortable, functional face masks that are made in South Central Los Angeles, and I have purchased four um, masks that I really enjoy. They're made to fit your face, and they have really great straps, great things. And I can't, um, I can't talk about them enough because <laughs> I keep checking out their Instagram page. Um, that's also their handle is Miguel Miguel Shop. And I keep following them and seeing their new designs. Uh, the latest one is a navy with silver rose charm, um, an autumn floral uh, mask that's really uh, stylish and really well made. So I would recommend you all to check it out and 
give them a like, uh, follow them, and or share it with your friends because they are handmade and they're um, you're supporting a local VIPOC business. Check them out. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash App us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.